0: going to kind of jump into some stuff this morning. I was telling first hour that I like to mess with the sound guys because they never know how hot I'm going to come in. So they're not sure what to do with this microphone. It all depends on how many cups of coffee I had. So um, I like, I like playing with them because it's fun because they never get, they're always in the back. You never get to see them. We just like to mess with them. We are um, super glad that you're here this morning. If this is your first time with us, um, I'm super glad you're here. If somebody drug you here this morning, that's hilarious. And will you'll know in a couple of minutes why that's funny, but uh, we are super glad you're here. Our, our ushers are passing some books by. If you, Uh, Could uh, just give us some contact info if it's your first time We would love to make contact with you during the week if um, whatever way you want us to do that So if you want us to just send you an email if you give us your email address We'll send you an email if you give us uh, your phone number Then uh, one of my favorite people on the planet barb is going to give you a call and just say hi to you She's wonderful and um, and if the best here's the deal now for you guys that are brand new first time with us The best is to give us your address And I can't tell you why because I've been sworn to secrecy. But that's the best. Just if you don't know me, but just trust me on that. Now, if you don't want to give us your address because you don't trust us, like, I get that. Give us your neighbor's address and just get the mail before they do. Okay, fair enough. So that's so you don't know what that means. You're like, wait, what are you talking about? It's awesome. Trust me. All right, so, um, uh, so so glad you're here. If you've been here 100 times, we love it. It's also you put your information there. That way we can correct anything in the database. We know you're here this morning. It's a cool thing. Also, our offering buckets are going to be going by. Um, just a way for you to participate in just showing um, uh, how good God's been to you and, and just a little way to give back a little bit to him for the ministry of North Point, what God's doing in the surrounding communities. We are finishing a series today. Yay! We're finishing a series called Really God? And we opened this series a few weeks ago uh, looking at some contemporary issues that we, were thought, uh, we thought were probably on the top of a lot of people's minds. And so three weeks ago we tackled um, the same-sex attraction LGBTQ plus uh, issue. And uh, how do we think about that as Christ followers? And what do we do with that? And, and, and what's our response? And totally not relevant to today's culture at all right totally not on the top of and then last week we talked about the issue of islam again asking some of the same questions how do we think about that as christ followers and what do we do with our neighbors that maybe look different or dress different or how does that work and what's our role and again not relevant at all to what we see on the news nearly every day right and today is week three And uh, and we're tackling it. A few weeks ago, we started this series. We gave uh, some of this PG-13 warning, and we were were most um, uh, concerned, I guess, about weeks uh, two and four, week two being the LGBTQ issue, and then week four being um, sex. that's what we're talking about today. So if someone drug you here, that's funny to me. I'm just putting that out there, okay? Uh, We start a new series starting next week. It's going to be called Better Together, really looking at the reality that God created life to be done in the context of of relationships. And so we're going, to, we're going to unpack that for four weeks. We're going to have some fun with that. If you're into Legos, come because we'll be having some Lego um, athons. It'll be awesome. So we'll start that next week. This week, we want to finish up the Really God series. Um, I got a few things that I just want to say by way of intro. I've been a youth pastor for a long time. This topic is not awkward to me at all. And so I just wanted to say that right up front because I don't know how you're feeling like you just heard me say sex a minute ago and somebody probably went oh wait and now you can't leave because if you get up and leave everyone's going to notice and so you're like oh boy and that's okay i'm not awkward by this so there is no reason for any of us to be awkward we're going to have really what i hope to be the beginnings of a really good conversation reality is that there is no chance this morning that i'm going to be able to tackle In almost 40 minutes. It'll be shorter, I promise. Uh, And the length of time that we have this morning, tackle every issue that's pertinent to everybody who's sitting out here and your particular stuff, your particular thinking, your particular wiring, your particular experiences, bad, good, your particular emotional state. There's no way that I can speak to all of that. And so I know that I'm speaking in some generalities. I know that I'm going to do some stereotyping. And I think that just kind of is... What it is, but here's what I wanted to say right on the front side is that if if uh, if you have questions, concerns, frustrations with everything that I say or anything that I say, talk to Rick. No, I'm just kidding. Um, feel free. I wanted to say that in this service. Uh, feel free to send me an email. My email is super easy. It's C. Carter. My name's Chris Carter. It's C. Carter at NorthpointCC.org. If you don't remember that, you can go online. It's highlighted right there. And I would be, I would, I would really consider it a privilege to dialogue in any ways about anything that's popping into your mind over the next few minutes as we talk together. Because really. I just want to open up a conversation. The other side of that is right out uh, through these doors, and on this kiosk uh, that I've been told we're supposed to call a desk, but I like the word kiosk; it sounds fancier. The kiosk that's out there um, is uh, connect here. We have uh, sermon-based questions for small groups, life groups, and individuals. And so I really want to encourage you to grab those today. If you're in a life group, those are going to be imperative because that's that's what's going to be shaping that discussion either today or this week when you meet with your life group. But also, it would be a great thing if you're not in a life group if you want to grab some people and go to lunch and continue this dialogue. Um, also, if you have kids, we gave that PG-13 warning on when we were thinking week two and this week, but I got to be honest, I think this is the best week to have your kids here with you. So if you want to go grab them right now from wherever they are, no, I'm just kidding, that would be weird. But, but certainly I think it's important to continue this conversation With your kids. What we're going to talk about today, I think, is very appropriate for ages. Um, But certainly, as a parent, if you have kids, you're going to want to have this dialogue, and those sermon based uh, questions for life groups and individuals will be really, really helpful for that. Okay. I think that they are pretty good because we ran out during first service and so we've made a bunch more and so I think that there's some stuff that will be great in terms of continuing on the conversation. Okay, are we good? I'm just starting a conversation this morning. That's all. I said a ton of things to say that um, this week we're calling sexology. And sexology, the study of sex, we could call it sex theology. It's really uh, the the question of of what what do we think about this issue of sex as Christ followers? What do we do with that? How do we think about it? How do we talk about it? Uh, I wanted to start by just sharing how my sexology was formed. See, I was a kid and I was growing up and I grew up in a a religious home and I went to Christian school for a while, grew up in church. And and what I remember clearly being taught and said from home and church and, and Christian school was sex is bad. It's dirty. Don't do it. And so that was my earliest beginnings of forming sexology. It's bad. It's dirty. Don't do it. When you get married, we'll talk about it. But until then, you just don't do it. And my body. Was saying something really different. I know this will be a huge surprise as a 12, 13, 14 year old boy. My body was saying, sex! That's what, and so it caused me to ask this question like, really, God? Like, is this, is this how this is gonna be? I don't, I don't get it. And I was part of the education public education system, so I went to public schools. This is back in the eighties and nineties and then uh, what was taught, at least the schools that I went to in terms of helping to form my sexology was if you have sex, you're gonna get pregnant or you're gonna get an S T D and die. I thought, oh, so now we're f- afraid of it, right? Like, oh, it's something to be scared. of. it's dirty, it's bad. You're going you're gonna to die, okay? And so, and so that was the earliest beginnings of, of my understanding, thinking, my sexology. By the way, I'm going to say the word sex a lot today. Every time I say that, I, we're not just talking about what you do with your parts. See, in, in our culture, we've really relegated and minimalized sex to just what we do with our parts, a very small geographical region on our bodies, But in reality, sex is so much more than that. It involves emotion and will and thinking and creativity and soul and heart and mind. So you're going to hear me say the word sex, but we're not just talking about what we do with our parts. We're thinking this bigger picture, maybe what we would call sexuality. Fair enough? I just need you to know that and how I'm using some terms this morning. So that's kind of how I grew up. I grew up thinking it was dirty, it was bad, don't do it, you're going to get an STD and die. And so there you go. So some years go by and I meet this beautiful girl. And I think, man, she's gorgeous, and she's fun and interesting and creative and smart, and I just like being around her. I think this is somebody that I could spend the rest of my life with. Like, I can envision weathering the storms of life with this person. I can see us growing old together, and I really want to have sex with her. And so I'm thinking, man, and so in the form of a question, I ask her to marry me. And she says, yes, it's insane, right? She says, yes, and so now we're engaged. And as an engaged couple, all these kind of friends came out of the woodwork, well-intentioned friends, and began to give us advice. And one piece of advice I remember, uh, and, I, and I can't... I, I think it was, I think it was uh, Emily, my wife's grandma, but I can't... I know it was an older lady, but I can't honestly remember where it came from. I'm pretty sure it was her. I forgot to check with Emily. She didn't correct me after first service, so I'm going with it. But I think it was her. She said to, uh, to us, hey, guys, you know what? Don't worry about having sex on the wedding night because you're going to be so tired after the big day of ceremony anyways.
1: And I said, well, uh,
0: What? I'm asking the question, like, like, really, God, like, is this is this what I don't What Really? Is that what it is? And so then a friend, a middle aged friend and married about 20 something years named Keith Crawford. Great guy. Respect him a ton. He sidled up next to me one day and he said, um, hey, you know, Chris, I want to give you the best piece of marriage advice that I ever got. I said, awesome. Hit me up. I don't I know nothing. Like, I got, I got nothing. Hit, give me something. He goes, awesome. Every time you climb in bed with your wife to have sex with her, pray right before it. It's really funny because all of you went, wait, don't move. Is that, I don't, uh, first service said the same exact thing. Like, I don't know how to respond to that. And as a 21-year-old guy, I'm like, Whoa, wait, what? Like, are you, are you telling me God's watching? And I'm, and I'm asking the question, like, really, really, God? Is this, I don't know, I'm, I don't know what I'm thinking about all this. Now I'm really... I'm really messed up. And so a little more time goes by. We're still engaged, and we entered into this thing called uh, premarital counseling, which, by the way, if you're, if you're younger and you're going to be married for the first time, I would highly recommend premarital counseling. If you're older and you're being married for a second or third time or whatever that is, I would highly recommend premarital counseling. A great opportunity to just talk about the realities of marriage for the first time or maybe a repeat or whatever. So we entered into premarital counseling with a pastor that I respected greatly. I love this guy. I still love him. He's one of my mentors in life. Uh, I want to say that because I do respect him deeply. His name's Craig. And uh, so we go through premarital counseling with Craig. I think it was like eight or nine weeks. And we get down towards the end of the weeks where, We start talking about um, sex. We know that that week is coming. And so uh, uh, we get to that week. We had done the homework in the book. Emily and I, we were kind of, hey, whatever, you know. And so we get to that week, and uh, he hands us a book, each of us. I'll give you the title, because if you've you've ever seen it, you'll chuckle if maybe you're my age or a little older. The book is called um, Intended for Pleasure. And I think the author's name is uh, Dr. Reverend Bishop Acolyte Father uh, Ed Wheat. I think it was what it was. And so it's a, it's a red book with black uh, edged pages. And so like any good school kid, I'm reading. I'm going to read this book. It's more of a technical manual, but he handed it to us. So I'm going to read it over the next week. And uh, it had a white dust jacket on it. And so I flipped to the back because on the back it has a picture of the couple who wrote it, husband and wife. And I'm not trying to be really funny or insulting. This is just the reality of what it was. I flipped to that cover, and and the word was octogenarian. If you don't know what that means, it means plus 80 years old. And so I'm looking at this picture. I'm not saying anything about age. I'm just saying that was not necessarily the image that I wanted in my head as I'm reading a book about, and I'm asking the question, like, really, God, is this, are these the only people talking about this? Like, this pastor hands me a book, and it's written by that I'm struggling to relate to. And so that's kind of where my sexology was formed. My guess is that we're probably all on similar pages with that. I know that we all have a theology of sex in here. We all have a sexology. We have, a, we have an understanding of the purpose and the, the, the hows and the whys and the whats of this thing that we call sex. We have a sexology. It's been formed in us somehow. Maybe it was intentional by parents or friends or church or or uncles or or whatever that intentionally sat us down and gave us some good instruction. Or maybe it was accidental. Maybe our parents were a little "Mm," about talking about it and the church we went to was a little "Mm," about talking about it. And so you formed your sexology from kids at school or media or magazines or Internet pages or whatever. But somewhere in you, there is a theology of sex that you have and you and I are exactly the same in that. And my hunch is that probably it's got some flaws somewhere. Somewhere our sexology is probably a little bit tweaked up. And so this morning that's where we want to talk about. That's what I want to start with. That's where I want to just open this conversation and then pray at some point in a few minutes and let you go to figure out where this conversation goes in your homes and with your spouse and in your life group and whatnot. The way we're going to frame this this morning so there's some sort of st- structure to how we're talking about this is I just want to lay out three key truths that I think are vital for us to understand. We'll talk through those, and then um, and then we'll kind of be done. The three key truths that I want to look at are this. Number one, there's something wrong with our sexology. There's something wrong with our, se- our theology of sex, and we've got to get it straight. And like the rest of this series, this Really God series, we gotta, we got to ask the question, who sets that up? Who defines our sexology? Who sets the parameters, rules, concepts, definitions, and descriptions of that? And we started in week one four weeks ago by asking the question, Is it me? Is it how I feel and what I want? Is it, is it we, the small group of people that we run with and hang out with, or maybe just we, me, and a spouse, is it what we want? Is it they? Is it the world, the culture, the media? Is that who defines our sex for us? Or is it he? And by that we mean God. Does God define and describe sexuality? And it's interesting because God has a ton to say about sex. And you guys know that I'm coming at this from a, from a position of saying it's ultimately he that defines and describes and lays out the plan for sex. First key truth, something wrong with our theology of sex. So We've got to get it straight. Second key truth, is there something uniquely powerful about sex? I just want to put it on the table because the reality is that it seems like there is something powerful about our sex drive. that seems to be different from other uh, desires, drives, inclinations that we have. We want to put that on the table and push that around a little bit this morning. We spend so much energy, time, money, thinking on this area of sex. There's something that seems different about this area, uniquely powerful about it. And then the third key truth that we'll tackle this morning is there's something sacred about sex. This desire seems to be different than all other biological functions. There's something not only powerful about it, but there seems to be something sacred about it. And so we want to put that on the table as well. Uh, There's going to be a lot of PowerPoint stuff flying behind me. So, you know, if you're a note taker, that's awesome. You're going to get frustrated at some point going, man, there's so much I can barely see it. Uh, This is online on our website. So you can grab this whole PowerPoint later. Uh, Our sermon based questions are online. You can grab those too. So all this is available to you. If you forget something, miss something, because I know we're going to move a little bit quick this morning. Here we go. Key truth. Number one, something wrong with our theology and getting it straight. Two sections in the Bible. I need you to find one is going to be Genesis chapter one. We're going to start there this morning. And then we're going to jump over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And so those are two sections that aren't going to be on the screen behind me. Uh, we're going to have some other verses that are going to fly up there at some point. But you'll maybe, if, you, if you have a Bible with you, you want to put your fingers in those two sections. Genesis chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Lots of different verses we can come from. But honestly, I think these are two watershed verses that help describe and define God's heart and God's mind on this issue of sex and sexology. So getting our sexology straight, there's something wrong with it. We need to get it straight. Here's what we want to do. Genesis chapter 1, begin right in the beginning, starting in verse 28. And for you guys, just to give you kind of the lead up to the story, if you're not sure where we are in the story, the history of the world, this is the beginning. God just created everything. He created everything, and he's really happy about it. At the end of each day of creation, he says, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And we get down to where he creates man and woman, and there's a a beautiful story to that because they're so different from all the rest of creation. And then God is going to have a conversation with them and begin to tell them what it is he wants from them. He didn't just create them to hang out and sort of float around. He actually had roles and jobs, responsibilities for them. And that's what he's going to tell them in verse 28, Genesis chapter 1. God says this, And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens over every living thing that moves on the ground. Jump over to verse 31 if you would. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth the day. So right in the beginning, God says, hey, I've got some stuff that I want you to do. And he uses three words, and it he goes on to talk about subduing and ruling, and that's more stuff for another talk at some point. But he uses three words that are important to us today. He says, there's these things that I want you to do. He says, first, I want you to be fruitful. And fruitful really is a word picture that, that gives you the sense of productivity. But God wants you to be productive. Not just Adam and Eve, but I think this applies to us as well. But we can just talk about Adam and Eve. He wanted Adam and Eve to be productive, to do something with their time, with their days. God had created this beautiful garden for them to be in, and this beautiful planet for them. And he says, be productive in this. Do stuff with it. Make it your own. Go at it. This is awesome. And then he looks them in the eye, and he says the second thing. He says, uh, and, and be multiplier, be multiplying, or, or multiply. There's no other way to understand this word other than to make babies. This is what he means by when he says multiply. Make more of yourselves. So he says be fruitful, productive, but also I want you to be making babies. And the process for making a baby was no different in Genesis 1 than it is today. It involves sex. So in essence, you could say God's first command to people is to have sex. Uh, some people are really happy about that. I'm happy for that too. Right? God says this first command, and so it's interesting. (laughs) He's high-fiving going on. This is not good. Uh, uh, (laughs) I love it. Uh, It's interesting because that's God's first command to people is this concept of multiply. And then he uses a third word. He says, and fill the earth. Now, these are just not repeated words that mean the same thing. They have different flavors. Being fruitful is this idea of productive, multiplying, making babies. And filling the earth is just not a uh, rehashing of the word multiply. It's this sense of, like, fill it with your presence, like, fill it with the fullness of who you are. Put your thumbprint on it. Put your stamp on it. Kind of make it your own. I've created it for you. Then you're going to love the heck out of it. It's going to be awesome. Like, get in there and, and just fill it with who you are. And sometimes maybe you have a friend that comes to your house that wears a certain kind of cologne. This is the image in my head. Or maybe it's a grandma or a grandpa that, you know, smells uh, like grandma and grandpa. I, I still remember how my grandpa smells. It's kind of silly, but I do. And when he'd come to our house and be there for a couple of days and he'd leave, it'd still smell like grandpa or a friend. Are you with me on this? Like, I think that's that picture, the word picture of filling the earth, like you're putting your you're with me on this, right? So God, in the very beginning, gives these commands to, to Adam and Eve to, to multiply and to fill and to be productive. And it's interesting because sex is part of that original command. Jump to chapter two in Genesis. I want to show you just a couple things because chapter two takes day six of creation and sort of zeroes in on how that happened because creating man and woman was so unique for God. Every other thing God created, he just spoke it and it happened. But with with man and woman, God did it did it uniquely and creatively. And so Chapter two really lines out how he did that in a very special, intimate way. And we get down to verse 24 of chapter two. And I just want you to see this. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. It's it's, it's interesting because at the end of creating man and woman and giving them these commands, which includes to have sex. God says that was very good. It's the only element of creation that the word very is tacked onto. Everything else God says it's good. But he says this is very good. And he's not just talking about the fact that he made a man and a woman and they look cool. He's like, oh, that was a cool, I did a good job on that. That's part of it, but it was also the entirety of what he told them to do in his plan for people, which involves sex. And so God says it's very good. And then we get into chapter 2 and we kind of see uh, not only God giving them a little bit more, but man's response, Adam and Eve's response. Because at the very end, there's this kind of strange phrase where it says, and they are both naked, but they weren't ashamed. And I think it's safe to add the words, because it was good. Like, this was right and good in the way it was designed to be. And it's also interesting because God tells Adam and Eve that there's going to be this relationship change. The most intimate relationship that you are going to have when you come into this planet is going to be with your mom and your dad. I mean, literally with your mom, you're tied to her. Right? It doesn't get much more intimate than that. And yet God says that's going to be a temporary relationship. Because, because at some point you're going to leave father and mother, which is so interesting because Adam and Eve didn't have a father and a mother. So God is setting up obviously something that's going to continue on to the rest of history. It's going to be a temporary relationship with mom and dad. You're going to separate from them and you're going to connect tie unitely with your wife. The the ESV uses the phrase hold fast. The uh, NIV uh, uses the phrase um, unite. Uh, The old King James version, if you're a King James guy, uses the word I wonder if anybody knew cleave, right? Which is like a terrible word because it can mean like tie together tightly. It can also mean to separate. So I don't know how that helps. But, but this idea that we use it in weddings still, that, that this new relationship, spouse to spouse, husband to wife, is going to be the most tightly connected, intimate relationship, even surpassing the intimacy you shared with parents. Isn't that crazy? And so they use this word, hold fast, united, cleave, that literally means to glue together so that you can't separate. When I was a kid, I was in 10th grade, I think it was, I took wood shop. And uh, I loved wood shop. I was, it didn't love me, but I loved it. And so I, we, we did these projects where maybe you'd have to glue boards together, and I'd glue them just a little bit crooked, right? And they'd dry, and I'd be like, dang it. And so then I'd try to tear them apart to re-glue them. If you've ever done that, you know, that's just not possible. You can break it apart, but they don't come apart cleanly. There's chunks of each other on on each, and it's just busted apart, and it's not what it was when you first glued them together and really struggled to to use them again. Interesting, the same word picture is employed by God to talk about the importance of marriage, this relationship that's going to be the new relationship, not mother and father, but this concept of husband and wife. Okay, so... What 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 needs straightening out then in our thinking in our sexology in the way that we understand sex Four things? I would say this number one. We got to get this in our head. God created sex. I, I know that sometimes that's hard for us to wrap our head around or maybe we have an intellectual understanding of that. Oh, yeah, yeah I know God created sex like he created. So the whole thing was his idea. It's not something we thought up in 1941 or 184 or 41, right? We didn't think this up one day, and God was like, what are they doing? I mean, he created this. It was his idea. Every sight, sound, sense, feeling, etc., everything good and enjoyable, he wanted it that way. It was his idea. This is what I wrote. Even the parts you're a little embarrassed about, I would never share with any one person. Yeah, he made it that way. It was his idea. He created it. Second thing I want to just stick in our brains, I think it's important, is God is not freaked out about sex. God is not embarrassed. He doesn't have to turn his eyes away when a husband and wife are together. Right? He's not embarrassed about sex. That, that guy, Keith Crawford, who uh, told me to pray before you have sex right when you're in bed with your wife there, um, while 21-year-old, I, I, w- I was having a hard time digesting that in my head, and I'm not advocating it, I'm just saying he was on to something. Like, like He was on to something that God is not embarrassed by this it 's not like God looks away again going like what are those guys doing that's not like he created that and, and i'm not I'm not looking to to make it worse or to, or to freak you out but the reality is because uh, sometimes we will ask well wait is God watching then well if the Holy Spirit is a permanent resident with us he's always with us you see where I'm going with this like not not only is he like doesn't have to turn his eyes away like oh, I can't look right now but like he's in He's involved in it. Now, don't get too weird. Don't go crazy on me. Like, wait, we're not having sex. With God. No, no, no. I'm just, I'm just saying I don't want to make it weird, but, but somehow God is part of that process, and, and, he, and it's good. He called it very good, and he's very okay with that. And he's not embarrassed about it. hard for us to wrap our head around this sometimes because the culture maybe has taught us something different about sex that it's bad that it's dirty it's something to be ashamed of it's something we hide and so we got to somehow get our thinking straight that at least God is not freaked out or embarrassed by sex number three getting our sexology straight God is incredibly permissive God is incredibly permissive he's not about no no don't no don't he's all about yes a hundred percent yes I created it I want it for you it's a good thing Like he's all about, yes, sometimes, again, we minimalize sex. We marginalize it to just what we do with a certain area of our body. But sex is so much bigger than that, how we think and emotion and will and soul. And we'll talk a little more about that in just a minute. Uh, Fourth thing is that there is purpose to sex. I think one of the lies that our culture teaches contemporarily is that, that it's, just, you know, it's just a thing, it's just for fun, it's just for giggles, but there is actual purpose. And, I, and I'd say there's, there's a number of, of worthy purposes uh, to sex, for sex, and I've got three, but maybe you've got some more and that's okay. Number one, I would say, is the bond and intimate relationship. Now, I don't know that these are in order, frankly. These are just kind of the way they came out of my brain. But bond and intimate relationship. God creates sex for the purpose of making the marriage relationship the tightest relationship you have. No friend sees you naked. Nobody else does that to you. There's this element that this is the only person you have for this. So there is this sense that it's the most intimate relationship, authentic, deep relationship. And that's, again, why maybe divorce is so damaging, even if there's biblical, legit reasons uh, to divorce. And I understand that. I get that. If you've been part of a divorce, if divorce has touched your life, you know it always hurts. There's always pain. Because, because this intimacy that was created in the sexual relationship has bonded this relationship so tightly. Second uh, worthy purpose, uh, make babies. I don't know how to say that. God could have created other bodily functions to to make more kids, but he didn't. Uh, He he created the sexual relationship, and part of that uh, reality is that that's the process for making babies. He decided to make it happen through sex. Um, It's interesting with humans. I think uh, this is true. I read it on the Internet, so it must be true. That I know I that that humans are the only animal species that copulate face to face. All other animals, it's more of a biological uh, drive and, and just reproduce more dogs or you know whatever. But uh, for people, it's something unique and different to it. So certainly, there's a process of creating babies, but there's this process of uniting this this intimate relationship. Another worthy purpose, I think it's a worthy purpose, would be for the purpose of pleasure. It's interesting when you think about it. Um, there's lots of other biological functions that go on in, in you every day that you don't even think twice about. Like, for example, digestion does nothing for me. Like, I don't they don't get me going. I don't even think about digestion until I eat too much late at night. And now I'm thinking about digestion, you know, because it hurts. But but the rest of the time, I'm not even thinking about it. And God could have easily created this process by which we have kids to be something that's just more, uh, you know, like digestion where there's no pleasure to it. And yet he creates it to be pleasurable because I think that that's a purpose of it. And all of that, all of that God blesses in his creation and says it's very good. So key truth number one, we just got to get some of our sexology straight. Key truth number two, there's something uniquely powerful about sex. God creates this thing. He puts this wiring in us, this drive, this event that has immense power to bond a relationship. The power is phenomenal. And then he puts this protective barrier around it. And he calls, at least Adam and Eve understood it, to be this commitment to each other. We would call that marriage. Marriage. Culturally, we call that marriage. God puts this protective boundary uh, barrier of, of marriage around a sexual relationship, not because God is restrictive, not because God doesn't want me or you to have fun, not because God's a killjoy, not because God says no or is restrictive, but because God knows the power because he created it in sex. And he says, you're going to operate in these protective bounds for your best interest. I was talking with a friend of mine this week, uh, Brad uh, Coco. He actually writes our sermon-based questions. We were talking about analogies in this area. And he thought an analogy for this, he thought it was awesome, was the analogy of fire. It's like fire is awesome, right? This is bonfire. Well, it's not really bonfire season. It's too stinking hot. But coming up in a couple months here, bonfire season, right? Yeah, fire in a fire pit, s'mores, awesome thing, right? Fire in a barbecue to cook meat so you don't have to eat it raw, awesome thing, Right? Fire in a fireplace in your house to heat it or for beauty or whatever is an awesome thing, right? We say fire is an awesome thing. But my friends who still live in California right now, with all the wildfires that are running rampant, are not feeling that fire is such an awesome thing Because I have friends living in hotels. I got friends who don't know when they're going to go back to their homes because fire out there has been left without any kind of protective barriers and it's running rampant. Does the analogy make some sense to you? It made sense to me when Brad was talking like that. This idea of sex, God puts this protective barrier of marriage around it. Uh, And and it's interesting because the Bible has tons of stuff to say about sex and the sexual relationship. matter of fact, some verses that will fly up on the screen behind me. Hebrews 13, this is what the author says there. He says, Mary should be honored by all and the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. We got a couple of words in there. Sexual immorality in the Bible is a very simple term. It means any sex outside of the context of marriage. It's a very simple term. It doesn't it doesn't leave lots of room to be interpreted differently. Right. Adulterer is also a really simple term. It simply means having sex with somebody that's not your spouse. So adultery, sexual immorality, God is pretty clear about that. Verses like Colossians three, this is what he says. He says, Put to death therefore whatever belonged to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to one another since you've taken off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Or 1 Corinthians 6, which we'll come back to in a minute, but it says this towards the beginning. It says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral or idolaters nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by his spirit of our God. Verses like these make it clear that sex is to be enjoyed and celebrated in this protective bounds, protective barrier of marriage. And yet in these verses we see that there's a whole list of other things as well because sin is sin. Not just sexual immorality is sin, not just adultery is sin, not just homosexuality is sin or lust or lying or greed or swindling or slandering like this is sin and all sin is sin and all sin matters to God and so we've got this reality that sin is a big deal to God and so he puts these protective natures these protective boundaries around the area of sex not because he's restrictive but because he wants what's best for us and while it's true that all sin is sin and all sin matters to God and I don't know that there's any worseness to sexual Uh, immorality having sex with somebody who's not your spouse than the other sins that are listed there uh there is something different about it See, i I don't know and in our culture it's sometimes sad because it's like maybe uh christ followers sometimes just kind of kind of turn their head when they know that there's a couple who's having sex and aren't married they're like oh it's no big deal and just kind of wink at it it's like not a big deal but it is a big deal because sin matters to god and sin's a big deal to god It's interesting to me because maybe some of the same Christ followers, Christians that would uh, rant on Facebook about a same-sex couple may have people in their own family or may themselves be having sex with somebody that's not their spouse. And that's like not a big deal to them. See, it's a big deal to God because sin is sin and all sin matters to God. Not because he's restrictive and a killjoy, but because he knows what's best for us and he wants us to enjoy it in these protective bounds of marriage. And so while sin is sin and all sin matters to God and there's some sameness there, there is something unique and different to the concept of sexual sin. This is what I want you to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I'm going to need you to find it if you haven't already because I want you to read this. I want you to see it there. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul, uh, the author, Bible author there, is writing to a church that's steeped in sexual confusion. They're just lost and confused. They're they're, they're engaged in things they shouldn't be, and they're not engaged in things that they should be, and so they're just confused. And Paul says in chapter 6, verse 18, he says this. He says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Uh, you are not your own, for you are bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Paul makes this interesting statement. There's something so uniquely powerful about sin. He says it's all like all other sin, all other sins that are in those lists, it's almost like they're out there. It's like they're out there. They matter and they're important because all sin matters to God. But there's something unique about sexual sin that seems to be in here. It seems to live right here. And it doesn't mean that you can never be forgiven from it. And It doesn't mean that if you, you know, have sex with someone that's not your spouse, that you're doomed forever. It doesn't mean any of that. But it means there's something different between sin and sexual sin. Almost like the scars of sexual sin last a lot longer. I've been doing youth ministry for a long time. Talked to lots of teens and young adults. And it's interesting because most have heard that, uh, oh, don't have sex until you're married because you could get um, an infection or you could get pregnant. or They've heard those things, that, what I call the scare tactics. But at this point in my life, to be quite frank, I, I think the more damaging thing about sex outside of the protective boundaries of marriage is the fact that it crushes your soul. So when a couple who's been sexually active breaks up, there's something deeper and more powerful to that breakup than a couple who's been dating for years and has never crossed that line sexually. I'm not saying both don't cry. I'm not saying both don't hurt, but I can just tell you from experience that the people who have been sexually active and then break up, that hurt is so much deeper for them because I think there's something uniquely powerful to sex, which is why God puts a protective barrier of marriage on it. All right, third key truth. Something sacred about sex. There's something sacred about sex. We struggle with this idea because we're kind of freaked out um, about bringing God into the, 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 the conversation, into the, into the issue, into the event, uh, because, we, again, we've relegated sex to just a kind of a small part of our body. But, but it's so much more than that, and we've kind of already said God created it, and he's not embarrassed by it, and there is something sacred, it seems like, to sex, and and the word sacred uh from it we get the word sacrament and i and i know that some people panic a little when we say sacrament because um certain religious groups have taken that word and kind of hijacked it and used it to mean certain things but at its core that word sacrament is a pretty good word because it just means a physical symbol of a spiritual reality a sacrament is just a physical symbol of a spiritual reality so when we take communion Joining that together here, that's a sacrament. It's something sacred about it. It's a physical picture. You're eating a cracker and drinking some juice of a spiritual reality of what Jesus did on the cross for us 2,000 years ago. The communion is a, is a sacrament. There's something sacred about it. Giving, or, or some people call it tithing. We did that a few minutes ago. It's a sacrament. There's something sacred about it. It's a physical action. You're putting uh, a couple dollars into a bucket when it goes by. It's a physical symbol of a spiritual reality reflecting how you trust God for everything in your daily life, that you're willing to give away some of it because you trust God. It's a sacrament a physical symbol of a spiritual reality a wedding ring that I wear That a lot of us wear is is in some respects a sacrament because it's a physical symbol It's just a chunk of metal around my finger that represents a spiritual reality Not only a commitment. I've made to my wife But a commitment that god is part of that whole piece a part of that whole puzzle. He's overseeing that spiritual relationship and sex It's a sacrament. There's something sacred to it. There is a physical act, but that it represents so much more. I want to read 1 Corinthians 6 again, but I want to read it from the uh, message translation of the Bible because it just says it a little differently, and I think it connects in a way here. He says it this way. There's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Sex is as much a spiritual mystery as a physical fact. As written in the scriptures, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of sex that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever, the kind of sex that can never become one. There's something in the intimacy of sex that is a mere reminder of the kind of intimacy we desire with God. Uh, Somebody once said that sex is a theological signpost that we were designed to be one with God. That's why there's no such thing as casual sex or it's just sex because there's so much more. There's something sacred about it, so much more to it, because somehow there's a mirror in that sexual relationship. That's a picture of our intimacy that we want to share with Christ. Um, It's interesting because in Hebrew, there's this really cool word. It's Yada, Y-A-D-A. If you guys were Seinfeld fans back in the day, Jesus forgives you. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, Seinfeld did a whole episode on yada, 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 if you remember this, right? And yada in Hebrew literally means uh, to, to know. To know. So when they say yada, 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 it's like, yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know. Or, you know, you know, you know, you know. So you can finish the story earlier, you can get somebody off your back or whatever. And so the Hebrew word yada, to know, is interesting because it's used in two different contexts in the Bible, throughout the Bible. It's used in places like Genesis chapter four, uh, verse one, where it says, "Adam yadded his wife Eve, and they got pregnant." So it's used as a word to mean sex. So like um, a King James' version might translate it uh, "new" or no." like Adam knew his wife Eve. It didn't mean like he like, "Oh, I know you, it meant he had sex with her. Right? and we see that all the way throughout Scripture. The ESV I think translates it um, uh, "laid with." I think the NIV translates it "slept with," but it's that word "yada." So when a man yadded his wife, you know they're talking about sex. But it's also interesting because in places like Psalm 139, that word "yada" is also used to describe knowing God and God knowing us. It's the same exact word, meaning to know, using two. Different ways or similar ways? Matter of fact, in Psalm 139, uh, it says right in the beginning, verse 1, it says, You have searched my heart, God, and you yada me. You know me. A word of intimacy. A word, of, uh, a word that describes the most, the most uh, authentic, deep, intimate relationship. Matter of fact, uh, Deborah Hirsch, uh, author and theologian, uh, she says this about the word yada. She says, The Hebrew word yada, to know, is in fact used for both the sexual intercourse as well as a relationship with God. Yada implies contact, intimacy, and relation. It refers both to sexual intimacy in the narrowest sense of the word in Adam knowing Eve, but also to our knowledge of God. Here's the cool part. This is significant. To yada God doesn't mean just having some abstract theoretical knowledge about God, but rather being connected to God. It implies an intimate and distinctly experiential knowledge of God, a direct encounter with the holy. And so whether we wish to point to the fullness of sexuality, knowing others, or the fullness of our spirituality, knowing God, yada is the word that we're searching for. So three key truths that I think are important for us to wrap our heads around as we try to figure out where we are in our sexology and what that means. So the question is, what do we do with all that? Talk for 20 minutes. What do we do with all that? What does that mean for us tomorrow when we go to work? What does it mean for us this afternoon? Well, maybe let me, before I, before I lay out just three key things that I think are really practical for us, let me ask a question and then attempt to ask it. Because the question that's most often asked is, then why is our culture so sexually immoral? Like whose fault is that? Like the sexual or immorality that runs around, that runs rampant right now. Like, whose fault is that? Is it young people's fault? I love it. We always blame young people. It's my favorite. Is it young people's fault where well, their hormones are just out of control? And I say, no, no, not necessarily because young people's hormones have always been out of control. Young people have always been young people. I say, I don't know that that's where we put the blame. And they go, well, maybe, maybe it's just our changing times. It's just the morals are looser now than they were back in the good old days. And I'd say probably not. Because, because morals have always been an up-and-down situation. Sometimes they've been more restrictive and sometimes they've been looser. And if you think of world history, there's been seasons in world history where the morals were way looser than they are today. Some would say way worse, or if that's a word, than they are today. So I don't know that that's where we can put the blame. And so some people say, well, maybe it's culture's fault. Media, television, music, the industry, what we see around us. We say it's a culture, it's media's fault. And I say, you know what, I don't know. I don't know if it's their fault, because you know what media is trying to do? All they're trying to do is define and describe sex. And they don't have the capacity to do that. Because if they don't know Christ, they don't know the fullness of it. And so they're doing the best they can to describe something they can't figure out. The analogy that was running through my head is like letting 8-year-olds teach other 8-year-olds how to drive a car. (laughs) Wouldn't that be a disaster? (laughs) They just don't get it fully yet. They're smart and wonderful and lovely children. But you wouldn't let them teach your other eight-year-olds how to drive a car. It's insane, and so I don't think it's our culture that's fully to blame. If I can just be honest with you, you know who I think is more to blame. I think it's us, Christ followers. I think it's me. I think it's us, Christ followers, because at some point we decided to disengage from the conversation. We became like shame-faced and embarrassed about talking about sex and sexuality. And so we've just kind of taken a step back and we've allowed the culture to fill in the gap to try and explain and define something that they just don't have the capacity to explain or define. And so what they do the best they can is they say, "Oh, well, then sex is all about finding it in as many places with as many people as possible. And all that does is equal more damage. Because as Christ followers, we've decided to be embarrassed about this and take a step back and not engage in the conversation. And so I think if we're going to blame anybody, maybe we blame us. I, I thought this was kind of funny. I wanted to share it with you. Author Philip Yancey uh, looked back to the 15th century and uh, just, just how the church culture back then tried to engage in this conversation of sexuality. And, and, and they're talking specifically here to married couples. And this is, what, um, this is what he found out. This is how it's written. It says church authorities issued edicts or, or rules for married couples forbidding sex on Thursdays because that was the day of Christ's arrest, and on Fridays, because that was the day of his death, and on Saturdays in honor of the Blessed Virgin, and on Sundays in honor of the departed saints. Wednesday sometimes made the list too, as did the 40-day fast periods before Easter, Christmas, and Pentecost, and also feast days and the days of the apostles, as well as the days of female impurity. The list escalated until only 44 days a year remained available for marital sex. (laughs) I don't don't know that we've done much better since then, to be honest. Maybe we don't restrict the days, but where are we having the conversations? Where are we engaging in the process? Where are we talking about this and highlighting this and and thinking these things through? It's really no wonder that our young people are, are learning and hearing and thinking that marriage is hot. I'm sorry, sex is hot before marriage. And then after marriage, it gets boring and goes downhill from there. Because we're just not talking about it. It's no wonder why they think, ah, yeah, sex is hot before marriage, but after that. If your marriage is boring, that's because you're boring. Don't blame that on God or the thing that he <laughs> built or the system. I want to say that with all the love in my heart. man. If your sex life is boring, that's, that's not marriage's fault. That's, you're boring, all right? And so somehow we want to reclaim this truth for our young people. So here we go. Three things. As I conclude and get done talking, I promise I'll be done in a minute. Three things that I think are important. We're just trying to figure out how do we apply this. Here we go. Number one. Get your sex right. Get your sex right. If you're having sex with someone that's not your spouse, uh, stop it. Stop it. I don't know what that means for you. Uh, Confess it. Get it right. Maybe it means marriage. Maybe it's time, like the great theologian Beyonce said. Put a ring on it. Um, Rick and I... Rick and I will be out in the back afterwards if you want. We'll just take care of it today. I, I don't know. Maybe marriage is the right answer. Maybe, maybe breakup is part of it. I, I don't know because I don't know your story and I don't know your situation. I'd be happy and, and considered a privilege to talk with you more about this if this is where you're at. But if you're having sex with someone that's not you're not married to, like quit that. Don't let sex run rampant in your life when you're not married. Not because God's restrictive or because we love to kill fun stuff, but because it's so damaging and potentially dangerous. If you're in a sexless marriage, fix it. I don't know what that means either. I don't know if that means counseling. I don't know if that means just a commitment to your spouse. I don't know if that means um, wire that way. There, there could be all different kinds of, and I get that, there could be all different kinds of reason from wiring to experience to emotion to physical that may create a situation like that. And I am not minimizing or downplaying that at all when I, when I kind of flippantly say fix it. But I, but I say sex is not something that could be just like ignored or swept under the carpet or like, oh, it's not an important part of our marriage. It is. And, 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 and let's think through and get some, some thoughts on how to make that better, right? So number one, get your sex right. Number two, um, talk about sex. This is what I wrote a lot everywhere all the time. <laughs> it's, I'm kind of joking, but, but not really. Talk about it a lot, especially if you have kids. Like talk to your kids. Some people say, how, uh, how early is, is the good time to start talking about sex? Frankly, if, if they're six or older, it's, you're on an uphill battle at this point. I think five and six is the best time to start talking about it. And it's an age-appropriate conversations. You're not, you're not giving all the details of how it all works, scaring your six-year-old to death. But, but certainly you can talk about the importance of, of parts and, and why they're kept private until you marry a spouse sometime in the future, and it's wonderful and beautiful. But until then, only a doctor is going to see or whatever. You're going to have these age-appropriate conversations with your kids. And then do it. Have those conversations often. When it comes up naturally, when something happens on a TV show, when you hear something as you're playing your kid's CD and you're driving somewhere, talk about it. Uh, there's, uh, it'll pop up behind me, but, but it'll be on the PowerPoint. You can grab it later. In 2009, I did a survey with 50 high school and junior high students and asked them what they wanted you to know as parents talking to them about sex you know the biggest things the coolest things that came out of that is they want you to talk to them about sex but they don't want you to know that they want you to talk to them about sex so they want to talk about this and have this conversation continually often talk about sex emphasize the permissive god that he is not the restrictive church remember that sex is more than what we just do with our parts so second thing talk about sex third thing Reclaim the hotness of marriage. Kiss your spouse a lot in front of your kids and non-married people. Here's what I wrote. Pat her rear end. Dance with her. Tell her how beautiful she is. Compliment his biceps. Bite his ear. Kiss his neck. Flirt. Date each other all over again and again and again and again. Like, like we've got to reclaim the hotness of marriage. For our culture to teach our young people that, that sex is hot before marriage and then somehow goes downhill and gets boring after that, is absolutely a lie. And we've got to reclaim that. And quite frankly, Christians, this could be the most fun battle we ever win, right? Reclaiming the hotness of marriage. Don't settle for a boring marriage or a boring sex life. Our culture is trying to teach all these different lies. Matter of fact, on the screen will pop up 18 different lies. The culture tries to teach us. I know you can't see those and I know you want time to write those down. Those are on the PowerPoint. You can grab those later, but 18 different lies that our culture teaches our young people about sex all the way from sex is casual to it's not important at all to it's the most important thing that you can't say no to it. That somehow you can reclaim your virginity that bodies are, gross, that if you're waiting for marriage, it's okay to have sex. These are all lies that our culture teaches. And as Christ followers, we have the opportunity to speak into this. If we're willing to let the embarrassment go and not stand there shame-faced, and not be awkward, but engage in a conversation because God created this thing and he called it very good. I don't know where to go with all that. I don't know how to end this morning. Isn't that fun? Maybe, maybe this is more intentional than not because I don't really want to end. I just want to kick off a conversation that you're going to continue to have over lunch, over the next few days and weeks with the people in your life group or the people in your social circles or even just your family, or maybe it's just your spouse. Maybe today's a great day for a date night and go out and just talk about it. Well, the pastor said we have to talk about sex, honey, so I we You're welcome, right? Because I just think that this is such an important issue. This is something our kids are thinking about. This is something our young people are thinking about. This is something our old people are thinking about. This is something people are talking about and thinking about. And we have great opportunity to reclaim this i'm going to pray for us and then rick's going to come up and just share a couple things and then we're going to sing a song and then we're going to be done but i do just want to highlight before i pray that that you would grab uh, those uh, sermon-based questions for uh, life groups and individuals good stuff especially for this conversation there is homework assigned on it if no other reason you'll want to grab it for the homework i'm going to pray on that note right there Jesus, thanks for today. Thanks for your love and your grace. God, thank you that you love us enough to not only create sex for us, but to create protective boundaries for it and, and the power that's behind it and then to be so gracious enough to tell us like, how it's best used and explored and enjoyed and celebrated. So thank you for that. And Jesus, there's people here, and I don't know their stories. I don't know where they're at. I don't know if this is an easy topic for them or a hard topic for them. I don't know if this is something that they've got dialed in or something that they're struggling with. But, God, I pray that you would use your spirit right now to speak to each of our hearts. And if we're in a marriage that needs help with this, that, God, you would bring help. And if we're in a non-married relationship that needs help with this, God, that you would bring help. And, Jesus, somehow in that all, you would be honored. Thanks for today. I pray that you would just continue to bless us. We would enjoy you. I love you. Amen.
1: Uh, this week, or today finishes this series. I, I hope that it's been a really, really good series for you. For us, it's been good to just talk about the stuff that we've talked about. Um, last week, I shared a story in my message. If, uh, if you were here, this will make sense if you weren't here It won't make a lot of sense, but I'll give you some explanation. I shared the story of a gal who has come out of the the, uh, Muslim faith and become a Christian, and I shared more details in that story probably than I should have relative to her safety. So uh, if you communicate that story out and about, uh, last week's message is not up on the website. We're going to work to edit it, to put it in a place that that her safety and anonymity is preserved. Uh, But if you do that, if you would just pay... Very, very close attention to any of the details and and just kind of leave them out. One of the things that came out last week was several people said afterwards, we'd like to be able to give to help her go to school to train to be a missionary to go back and reach the, the Muslim world. And, um, and so we want to make that opportunity available. About every three months, we do oftentimes a special offering, a benevolence offering. Today is not a benevolence offering. It's actually a mission offering that will go to help her go to school this fall. I invite you, encourage you to give in any way that God leads. If you didn't come prepared to give, you want to write a check later, just, uh, just write on the notation to reach Muslims. Um, And we'll get there if you do it uh, electronically. If you do it through the website, you can do that just by tagging it as Benevolence. And that will work uh, for the next couple of weeks or so. Uh, God's working in some good ways. Let's stand together. Let's sing.